Coming to you from the Forge of Freedom studio in the heart of America, a podcast dedicated to preserving freedom and inspiring personal success. Freedom is born and lives through you, the individual, and it dies in the shadows of tyranny. Motivating our listeners to become well-rounded, freedom-minded people with the body of an athlete, the mind of a stoic, and the spirit of a warrior. The Tree of Liberty lives on through you, the Forge of Freedom. And now, here's your host, Alex Uli. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Forge of Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Alex Uli, and this is episode 58 of the Forge of Freedom. And today, I want to talk to you about a book by Lawrence Vance called The War on Drugs is a War on Freedom. And to start out, I'm going to share an article with you by David Gordon, and it's an article at Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S dot O-R-G. And David Gordon is a a prolific writer. He's published many uh, scholarly articles and and published in many scholarly journals. Uh, I don't remember how many articles he's published by now, but it's, it's a prolific number of articles that he's written. And this article reviews this book by Lawrence Vance. And and again, the book is called The War on Drugs is a War on Freedom. And I've touched on this topic a little bit previously uh, in episode three and in episode 14. In episode three, I talked about the war on drugs. And in episode 14, I talk about positive and negative rights. And I'll link to those episodes in the show notes along with this article by David Gordon. But I want to share this article with you and then share a few of my thoughts uh, and then a a few related items as well related to the the Patriot Act, actually. And it'll make more sense here in a little bit about why I'm going to mention the Patriot Act. Uh, but but here's the article. It's an article from 2012, actually. So it's an article with some age, uh, but this is an excellent book. I'd encourage you to read it. And I think it it points out a lot of things that people intuitively think is wrong about the war on drugs, but but can't quite articulate. And Lawrence Vance does a wonderful job articulating the problems, the fundamental problems with the war on drugs. Uh, So here we go. The efforts spurred by Mayor Bloomberg to ban large cans of drinks deemed too sugary have been much in the news lately. And a peculiar point in the mayor's defense of this measure is highly relevant to Lawrence Vance's excellent book. What struck me as odd in the mayor's comments was that he confined his defense to pointing out the dangers to health posed by the drinks he wished to ban, along with the attendant monetary costs that illnesses that resulted from consuming these drinks might impose. It never seemed to occur to Mayor Bloomberg that whether an individual decides to consume a harmful substance ought not to come under government uh, governmental supervision. The decision is the person's alone to make. What was odd about the mayor's comments was not so much that he rejected this view, but rather that he did not deem it worthy to mention. State paternalism for him required no defense. 
As Vance reminds us, it is not only libertarians who reject paternalism. To the contrary, the view that the state can address only acts directed against others, not ones that affect immediately just an individual himself, is integral to the classical liberal tradition. It received its canonical statement from John Stuart Mill. The only freedom which deserves the name is that of pursuing our own good in our own way, so long as we do not attempt to deprive others of theirs or impede their efforts to attain it. Each is the guardian of his own health, whether bodily or mental and spiritual. Mankind are greater gainers by suffering each other to live as seems good to themselves than by compelling each to live as seems good to the rest. Mises applied Mill's principle to the subject of Vance's book, Drug Regulation, in characteristically incisive fashion. To allow regulation of dangerous drugs opens the door to attacks on freedom of speech and of the press. Mises said, opium and morphine are certainly dangerous, habit-forming drugs. But once the principle is admitted that it is the duty of the government to protect the individual against his foolishness, no serious objections can be advanced against further encroachments. And why limit the government's benevolent providence to the protection of the individual's body only? Is not the harm a man can inflict on his mind and soul even more disastrous than, all, than any bodily evils? Why not prevent him from reading bad books and seeing bad plays, from looking at bad paintings and statues, and from hearing bad music? For Vance, the fundamental issue in drug regulation is individual rights. He does not at all deny that these drugs can cause great harm. But the issue of regulation is not to be settled by balancing the benefits and harms of open access to drugs against the benefits and harms of their regulation or prohibition. He says, practical and utilitarian arguments against the drug war are important, but not as important as the moral argument for the freedom to use or abuse drugs for freedom's sake. The moral case for drug freedom is simply the case for freedom. Freedom to use one's property as one sees fit. Freedom to enjoy the fruits of one's labor in whatever way one deems appropriate. Freedom to use one's body in the manner of one's choosing. Freedom to follow one's own moral code. Freedom from being taxed to fund government tyranny. Freedom from government intrusion into one's personal life. Freedom to be left alone. This passage illustrates Vance's force and eloquence, often based, as here, on the repetition of a key phrase. If consequences are for Vance not the most important consideration in morality, they nevertheless matter. By the way, it's a common misconception that supporters of a rights-based morality ignore consequences and that for them these carry no moral weight. To the contrary, almost all supporters of moral rights think that consequences are also morally important. I think that Vance ought not 
to have contrasted moral with practical and utilitarian considerations. Both rights and consequences are parts of morality. Much of the book consists, consists of a concise yet comprehensive account of the bad effects of drug regulation. The, the war on drugs has led to the highest prison population of any country in the world. The United States leads the world in the incarceration rate and in the total prison population. Almost 20% of the state prison population are incarcerated because of drug charges. Almost half of the federal prison population are incarcerated because of drug charges. There are almost 350,000 Americans in state or federal prison at this moment because of drug charges. And this moment being uh, November 2011 uh, in the article. The drug war has had manifold insidious effects on civil liberties. The war on drugs has destroyed financial privacy. Deposit more than $10,000 in a bank account and you are a suspected drug trafficker. The war on drugs has provided the rationale for militarizing local police departments. The war on drugs has resulted in outrageous behavior by police in their quest to arrest drug dealers. The war on drugs has eviscerated the Fourth Amendment's prohibition against unreasonable searches and seizures. In its deleterious effects on freedom, the drug war recalls the worst excesses of prohibition. For these, the short contemporary account of the revisionist historian Harry Elmer Barnes, uh, Prohibition versus Civilization, Analyzing the Dry Psychosis, is well worth seeking out and reading. These immense costs have not brought with them extensive good results. To the contrary, the drug war has been a manifest failure. In spite of decades of prohibition laws, threats of fines and or imprisonments, and massive propaganda campaigns, drugs are available and affordable. Vance, it is apparent, has launched a remarkable war of his own, conducted with superb generalship against the drug war, and one of the arguments in his campaign strikes me as an especially effective one. The harms of tobacco and alcohol vastly exceed the ill effects of dangerous drugs, yet there is no call to ban them. Prohibition is recognized by nearly everyone as a failure not to be repeated. If this is so, how can one justify banning less dangerous substances? Alcohol abuse and heavy tobacco use are two of the leading causes of death in the United States. It seems rather ludicrous to advocate the outlawing of drugs and not the outlawing of alcohol and tobacco. Vance writes from a viewpoint that will surprise many readers. He himself does not condone the use of dangerous drugs. To the contrary, he is a Christian and a Bible scholar of considerable note, and he regards their use as sinful. As an adherent to the ethical principles of the New Testament, I regard drug abuse to be a vice, a sin, and an evil that Christians should avoid, even as they avoid supporting the government's war on drugs. 
if Vance takes this view of drug use, why is he so adamant that people have the right to consume these drugs? His answer will be of interest to all students of moral theology. He holds that Christians can, with perfect consistency, uphold the distinction between vices and crimes, with only the latter an appropriate area for forcible suppression. No Christian would be in favor of criminalizing all sins, not when the Bible says that the thought of a foolishness is sin. And that's Proverbs 24, 9. Why then are some Christians so quick to applaud making some sins criminal just because the state happens to select them and not others? Vance's admirable remarks on this topic will, I suspect, be of great interest even to those who do not share his faith. The war on drugs is a war on freedom, is an outstanding contribution to the contemporary battle for liberty. It has the potential to do great good, and Vance deserves high praise for his magnificent work. All right, that's the uh, that's the end of the article there by David Gordon, and once again, I'll I'll link to that article in the show notes. But I wanted to share that article with you. Uh, like I said, I've touched on this subject in episode three and fourteen, and then also I don't have the uh, episode number at my fingertips, but he referenced the uh, the concept that vices are not crimes, which is of course a famous work by Lysander Spooner, and I've discussed that previously as well. So I'll link to that show in the show notes. Um, but this is of particular interest to me. Obviously, I've, I've touched on this topic a number of times already in 58 episodes, and I talk about it frequently because I think it's one of the greatest atrocities of the 20th and 21st century is the, the war on drugs in the United States, and for lots of reasons. Uh, but I'm also an attorney. I do a lot of criminal defense work, and I see the devastation that these that uh, drugs wreck on a daily basis. But more importantly, and to a greater degree, the war on drugs. Uh, it's it's an interesting thing. Uh, it's it's a the war on drugs is something that's often advocated by conservatives. Uh, but it requires a great expansion of the state and the apparatus of the state to effectuate the war on drugs. And I think this is, uh, there's some cognitive dissonance going on here, uh, especially with conservatives on this issue. And I think not only is it morally wrong to outlaw and to uh, coerce people how to treat their body, but I think it has terrible effects. Obviously, the the article here points out that the United States has the uh, highest incarceration rate in the world. That was true back in 2012, I think is certainly still true today. Uh, nearly 12 years later. Uh, but the other thing is that <laughs> the war on drugs causes a black market. 
and the black market is controlled by dangerous thugs, by gangs, by cartels, etc. And it's just like the cartels, the gangs that existed during alcohol prohibition. The drug lords that exist today would cease to exist upon the termination of the war on drugs. There would be no El Chapo, just like there was no Al Capone after Prohibition. We would have a market for these types of drugs. There would be quality control. These drugs would not be laced with uh, dangerous drugs that people do not intend to take or do not intend to take in deadly doses. And so this black market that's created that cannot be eliminated. I mean, these drugs, and I've had numerous clients tell me this, drugs are nearly as easy to get in prison as they are on the street. If the state can't keep these things out of prison, how could they ever keep them off the street? And the answer is they cannot. So I, I think this is a, a, an extremely costly war. We've spent billions and billions of dollars carrying out the war on drugs, destroying lives and creating black markets that result in violence among gangs, that result in property thefts, crimes, etc., and that result in compromised drugs that kill people unintentionally. So I, I hope you'll check out this book, uh, the War on Drugs is a War on Freedom. The other thing I want to mention here, too, is that the War on Drugs has escalated significantly uh, after 9-11 and 2001. And <clears throat> I want to mention the Patriot Act here in an article from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. The Patriot Act, of course, was adopted in response to 9-11 as an effort to try to uh, minimize terrorism. But the article here, and I'll link to this in the show notes as well, says that the Patriot Act continues to wreak its havoc on civil liberties. Section 213 was included in the Patriot Act over the protests of privacy advocates and granted law enforcement the power to conduct a search while delaying notice to the suspect of the search, known as a sneak and peek warrant. And these sneak and peek warrants, uh, the article goes on further down, have been used thousands of times, and only 0.5% of requests for these sneak, uh, sneak and peek warrants were for terrorism. The majority of the requests were overwhelmingly for narcotics cases, for drug cases. And in a separate article echoing this point, 
There's one from the Washington Post that I'll link to, but there's also one from New York uh, Magazine. And it has a chart that shows uh, from 2006 to 2009, delayed notice search warrant requests, these sneak and peek warrants, there were 1,618 for drugs and 15 for terrorism. So uh, these two things uh, go hand in hand, the, uh, the war on terror and the war on drugs, uh, the powers that the government has usurped uh, and claimed in the name of fighting drugs and in the name of fighting terrorism um, have been used to great abuse and to almost no effect. Uh, and I think this is a huge, as, as the Electronic Frontier Foundation says, havoc has wrecked havoc on civil liberties. And I think we'll continue to do so until the people realize what is happening and take responsibility to stop the government that's gone too far. All right. Um, I hope this has been somewhat enlightening or at least thought-provoking. Undoubtedly, I will talk more in the future about the war on drugs. Um, Again, the, the article was by David Gordon. The book was by Lawrence Vance. Again, it's the war on drugs is a war on freedom. And to close out here, I want to share one more item with you. It's an excerpt from a speech by Learned Hand, and it was a speech given in 1944. And Learned Hand uh, was an American jurist, a lawyer, and a judicial philosopher. And he served as a federal trial judge on the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York, and then later as a federal appellate judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit from 1924 to 1951. And as of 2004, and I suspect through today, uh, Learned Hand had been quoted more often by legal scholars and by the Supreme Court of the United States than any other lower court judge. And by lower court judge, of course, we just mean a, a judge that's not on the Supreme Court, that's on a court lower than the United States Supreme Court. But I like his speech, and I'm going to share in closing here, just a few excerpts from it. He says, What do we mean when we say that first of all, we seek liberty? I often wonder whether we do not rest our hopes too much upon constitutions, upon laws, and upon courts. These are false hopes. Believe me, these are false hopes. Liberty lies in the hearts of men and women. When it dies there, no constitution, no law, no court can even do much to help it. While it lies there, it needs no constitution, no law, no court to save it. And what is this liberty which must lie in the hearts of men and women? What then is the spirit of liberty? I cannot define it. I can only tell you my own faith. The spirit of liberty is the spirit which is not too sure that it is right. 
The spirit of liberty is the spirit which seeks to understand the mind of other men and women. The spirit of liberty is the spirit which weighs their interests alongside its own without bias. The spirit of liberty remembers that not even a sparrow falls to earth unheeded. The spirit of liberty is the spirit of him who near 2,000 years ago taught mankind that lesson it has never learned but never quite forgotten. That there may be a kingdom where the least shall be heard and considered side by side with the greatest. And now in that spirit, that spirit of an America which has never been and which may never be, nay, which never will be, except as the conscience and courage of Americans create it. I love this and, and, and I need your help. It is up to us to carry on what Learned Hand calls the spirit of liberty. Freedom is won and lost when it lives and dies in the hearts of individuals. Liberty lives on through you. You are the forge of freedom. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. Um, Monday, I'll be joined again by Mike Uli uh, to discuss the recent controversy around the Liberty Safe uh, situation where they disclosed a master code to access one of their customers' safes. Uh, and they disclosed this master code to the FBI uh, without the knowledge of their customer and without a warrant. So tune in for that. We'll be releasing that episode on Monday. I think you'll uh, enjoy some of the insight that we can provide to that situation. So uh, keep an eye out for that. And like I said, until next time, remember, you are the Forge of Freedom. Thanks for listening to this episode of Forge of Freedom. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss a future episode. For more information or to connect with Alex, you can go to forgeoffreedom.com or follow him on Twitter at Forge of Freedom. Until next time, remember, you are the Forge of Freedom.